This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Join the conversation and message Buck on Facebook, Instagram, or email teambuck at iheartmedia.com. He may read it on the show. It's good to see the truth starting to trickle out, not just about the lab leak theory, but also about Dr. Fauci himself. A conniving, sniveling, on the one hand, on the other hand, both side of his mouth talking Democrat. That's who Dr. Fauci is. That's what we've been subjected to for over a year. And finally, people understand why I have found this guy to be such an odious little lab coat tyrant. And the more we dig into this and hear his babbling nonsensical explanations, the more clear it is some of us were right all along. We knew who the doctor was. But I'll I'll dive more into this in a moment. I want to make sure that you are protecting your online privacy because true online privacy is actually a thing of the past. Now your online data always seems to be under the magnifying glass by big tech. There's anxiety of not having control of your online data while it's being manipulated and sold to advertisers. But now there's a new way with the ultimate privacy and cybersecurity communications tool in your hands, introducing secure an instant messaging and email platform hosted in Switzerland, protecting your data with the strictest privacy laws in the world. Secure is spelled S-E-K-U-R and uses proprietary encryption technologies, an independent platform, and Swiss privacy laws to ensure complete privacy and security of your data on desktop and in transit. This is secure and private instant messaging and email. It assures your conversations, messages, and data are kept completely safe and private. Secure does not mine your data and is not subjected to the Cloud Act. Take back your freedom, privacy, and online security with Secure by going to Secure, that's S-E-K-U-R dot com. Spelling is very important here. Secure, S-E-K-U-R dot com. Make sure you use the coupon code BUCK for one week free and 25% off. Use that coupon code BUCK. Go to Secure, S-E-K-U-R dot com. Regain your privacy online for your data for your emails. Is it because China is so opaque? Is it because WHO is not sharing information? Why is this so difficult? There are several reasons, Willie, why it's difficult. I think one of the things is that we need better access to all the information. I mean, it's obviously in China's interest to find out exactly what it is. And the is of the of the natural theory would be to find that link. So you have to keep looking for it. I mean, obviously you want openness and cooperation. One of the ways you can get it is don't be accusatory. Try to get both a forensic, a scientific, and an investigational approach. I think the accusatory part about it is only going to get them to pull back even more. We've got to do it in a combination of diplomacy, scientific, forensic investigation, and do it in a way that the people of good faith, not who want to do blame, but people in good faith are really trying to find out what the origin is. And we're seeing a lot of, you know, um, I don't even want to describe it, a lot of pointing of fingers and things like that. Keep an open mind and go after the truth. Go after the truth, he says, as if the Chinese Communist Party could give a Fauci about the truth. Give me a break, friends. This is absurd, absurd. But 
He's a bureaucrat. He's a Democrat. He's a collectivist. And he does not want people to start asking questions. That's been the case all along. Don't you see the pattern here? There's a very clear theme. Dr. Anthony Fauci has no interest whatsoever in being questioned. He is interested in giving pronouncements. And the moment anybody has a a second of doubt, he just falls back on the science. As if that explains the whole situation. As if there's no doubt in science. This whole process, the scientific method, inquiry based upon fact and reason and experiment and data has been corrupted during this pandemic by bureaucrats acting as monarchs, telling us what we can and cannot do, where we can and can't go, who we can see, how we can live, how we can breathe. And now, finally, we're seeing yet another instance of how the Fauciites were wrong, and worse than being wrong, they faked certainty and lied, lied to the public about the degree of their knowledge and and how right they were. Fauci won't criticize China. Why? Because he's somebody who believes that the scientific community is effectively a global government of sorts. The scientific community has the say in this. They determine, not even your own government determines, they determine the expert consensus what happens in the midst of a global pandemic. And they are beyond reproach. In fact, they are above criticism. Because that's how important they are, how right, how smart, brilliant even, the Fauci-eyed consensus makers are. They were wrong on pretty much everything, friends. Everything. They were wrong on masks by their own admission, because at least at first they said masks are dumb and don't protect you. Cloth masks are a joke, essentially. And then they changed on that. So they were definitely wrong. It's just a question of how many times they were wrong about school closures. They were wrong about the effects of lockdowns. They were wrong about expanding 14 days to slow the spread to 14 months, basically, to slow the spread. The whole thing was a debacle. And the very origins of the story itself, as you see, were rife with lies and fraud and the instinct to suppress, to shut down free inquiry and to pretend that this was effectively a settled issue. They love this notion of the settled science. But what we see is that the same apparatus of suppression that insisted the lab leak theory was a conspiracy uh, theory, uh, have spent over a year shutting down honest debate about masks and lockdown effectiveness. What's the lesson we take from this? Authoritarian censorship is a bad idea, even when its proponents wear lab coats. It's essential. And what we're also taking from this is that Fauci was a bigger fraud as pandemic hero than Cuomo or Newsom or any of the idiot Democrat governors who thought that by basically telling you to lock yourself in a closet and wrap five plastic bags around your head because of the virus, the science. They were heroes for that. But we know that they're morons. Fauci was supposed to be better than that. Give it time. Everybody will see the truth, though some will never accept it. Fauci is 
awful. Fauci is the worst of all the people that abused the public's mind, of all the people that created mass panic and anxiety unnecessarily. None, none were as uh, pervasive as the constant presence on your TV screen, the constantly quoted in the media, Dr. Fauci. How many little lab coat authoritarians work at the NIH? How many work at the CDC? A lot. So why is it the only one you've really heard of or the only one you've ever seen is this little Anthony Fauci character? Uh, Because he was elevated into something much more than just a bureaucrat who's supposed to be reporting on numbers and advising politicians. He became a symbol, a symbol for the lockdowners, a saint of sorts, although I'm sure that many of the people we're talking about here object to the very notion of saints. He was elevated as the, the great king of the lockdowners. And now we see that it was all a mess, a fraud. These emails are exposing more and more of who Dr. Fauci really is. And now people are talking about a cover up. Now you are seeing that there was gain of function research being done. That this is a real thing, that it's not a conspiracy theory, and that there were only, and this is according to a piece in Vanity Fair, three places in the world. One, I believe, in Houston, one in uh, the Carolinas, and one in China, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, that were doing the kind of research on bat coronaviruses that could have led to an outbreak. And we find out that while in the early days of this pandemic, we were told that it was a biosafety level four facility, right? The highest. In fact, the Wuhan Institute of Virology had several wings that were about a dentist office level of uh, viral protection and viral safety protocols, virus uh, protocols. That's important for us to know, isn't it? That's important for us to see. And yet that information was hidden. The bureaucrats in the global health bureaucracy, these are really just U.N. people in lab coats. That really makes it clear, right? These are U.N. bureaucrats who work for, you know, whether it's the World Health Organization or even our own CDC. They are collectivist bureaucrats, and they knew they had to do a lot of what we call CYA. The young ones in the audience, you can ask your parents to explain that one to you. I can't I don't want to say that one on the air. C.Y.A. Cover your something. That's what they were doing. Make sure the public couldn't figure out the real origins of this virus and to think that it came from a, a bad and then there was an intermediary species. OK, maybe that's still true, but they certainly did not know that to be true, and they pretended they did because they didn't even want the possibility to be out there that this came from research that was funded in part by U.S. dollars. If you give money to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, you are funding the Wuhan Institute. That money is going into the pockets of the people making decisions there. It doesn't really matter. Uh, Money is fungible. Right. It doesn't really matter if you were funding directly that research or something else. You know, I, I would not give money to Planned Parenthood 
even though they say that they you know, send people for outsourced uh, mammograms or something, right? Because I don't want to fund Planned Parenthood. I think it should be defunded. Whole other conversation. But they funded the Wuhan Institute of Virology through a third party. U.S. dollars went to somebody, uh, Peter Dajak. This guy very involved in the early days of the messaging campaign around all this. And it starts to stink to high heavens, friends. It smells like cover up. It smells like information operation, not just against the American people, against the world. Think of what the implications are here. Yes, for the Chinese Communist Party, but for the global scientific community. Think about what this would mean. A lot of people will go to pretty extreme lengths to make sure that the truth about this is whatever they want it to be. Our perception of truth is whatever they decide it must be. Can't you see how Fauci was doing just that in the early days? The emails paint a disturbing picture, a disturbing picture of Dr. Fauci from the very beginning, worrying that he had been funding gain of function research. And he knows it to this day, but hasn't admitted. We have to get uh, Democrat counterparts that will actually use the committee hearings to investigate this. But so far, it's been such a partisan support for Dr. Fauci that he can do no wrong. But really, there's a lot of evidence that he has a great deal of conflict of interest and that if it turns out this virus came from the Wuhan lab, which it looks like it did, that there's a great deal of culpability in that he was a big supporter of the funding, but he also was a big supporter to this day of saying we can trust the Chinese on this. We can trust the Chinese scientists. And I think that's quite naive and really should preclude him from the position that he's in. Senator Rand Paul has been correct time and again, and Dr. Fauci has been wrong over and over again. That's the conclusion we should all draw from what has happened. Over the course of this pandemic, that's what the facts actually show us. Concern about gain of function research funding. Now, I understand there will be people who say, well, it's it was an accident. Even even if U.S. taxpayer dollars were used at the Wuhan Institute of Virology and specifically allowed for and it was only six hundred thousand dollars, but allowed for some greater degree of. Uh, gain of function research they'll say well it was an accident and I'd, I'd point out okay would we have listened to the global health bureaucracy about this would anybody have wanted to hear a damn thing that the little lab coat tyrant Fauci had to say the Stalinist smurf of the NIH would anybody have wanted to listen to a thing he had to say about this if we had known that we were only dealing with the virus in the first place because of global health community bureaucrat collaboration funded in part by U.S. taxpayer dollars. Think about this. If Fauci appeared on TV every night, wear your mask, lice all your groceries, you know, we're going we're gonna to hit a surge and then a plateau and then a surge and then maybe another plateau. You know, would, would you have listened to this guy? Would you have wanted to hear what he had to say at all? If you had known that he and his bureaucracy were involved in funding the kind of research that led to this outbreak in the first place, I think the answer is no. I think we all would have been saying, what the heck is going on here? And now you're going to put yourself in this high and mighty position of telling us all 
all of us in America, how to live our lives down to minute details. Can you hug your relatives? Can you go out into a public playground? That's the kind of stuff that the Fauciites were making determinations about. And yet the very beginnings of this virus, not only were they trying to hide it from us, but they also may have been covering up some degree of complicity in the outbreak in the first place. That is stunning, isn't it? Well, it's stunning to normal people, to people that think that wearing three masks while they go jogging alone, even after being vaccinated, uh, is is a mark of, of intelligence instead of the exact opposite of that. Fauci is someone that they will they'll never give up that he was he was great. They'll, they'll never admit that this guy was a fraud, because what would that say about their judgment? I mean, what would it say about Nicole Wallace's intelligence over at MSNBC? Well, does anybody really have any questions about that? Here's what she says about Dr. Fauci's emails. Here's her take on it. Play 10. And that's what I was trying to do is to always tell the truth on the basis of what the data is. And it was never deliberately something against the president. In fact, you spoke about my emails. You look at my emails. I never in the email said anything derogatory about President Trump. Well, the true mark of someone is if they look good, even when their personal emails come out. So you, you pass the test that very few of us would, would pass. Oh, my gosh, Dr. Fauci, you're just so amazing. Oh, my gosh, you're so amazing. You're just like like our superhero fighting the virus. It's like so good. Unbelievable. Oh, did did Fauci really uh, did he did he really tell the truth in the beginning? What is it about this guy that that makes libs all sit around and just and just gleam with uh, with with pride, with. Uh, they really look at this guy as though he's like the dad they never had or maybe the grandpa they never had. And I, I just don't get it. I can't imagine going through life thinking that this this guy who's been working for a health bureaucracy for so many decades, have any of these people ever showed up at a public hospital? Have they ever dealt with, you know, the bureaucrats who are making decisions in these places? You really, you really think they're, they're heroes and they always have your best interests at heart? Oh, man, I... A lot, a lot of cost-cutting measures. A lot of, you know, go wait in the emergency room for eight hours while you're bleeding. Uh, you know, sorry, too bad. Uh, but they, they believe that Dr. Fauci was a necessary, a, a savior, actually, in all of this. He has been elevated to religious icon status, and he is a tiny golden calf. Oh, and the little golden calf, when he would bleat, often said the wrong thing, but there were things he wouldn't say either, which I think is so interesting. You will recall that he, he, is, he is now claiming that he had no problem with Trump. He was never an issue for the White House. It was never political for him. The former White House chief of staff under President Trump, Mark Meadows, brought this up recently. This was somebody who was working with and dealing with Fauci every day. Here he is, play nine. 
Well, I can tell you that what needs to happen is uh, Ranking Member Jordan and his Senate counterparts need to have another hearing where they actually bring back in Dr. Fauci to look at some of these key questions. Part of the troubling thing that we're seeing with these emails that are coming out is not only do they seem to correspond with what President Trump said and what Secretary Pompeo uh, said in terms of the origins of the virus, but it indicates that Dr. Fauci had knowledge or at least the suspicion of things not uh, happening in an evolutionary manner very early on. And he didn't share that with the task force. That's very troubling and something that we do need to get to the bottom of. Why wouldn't he share that suspicion with the task force? Gee, I wonder why. If you listen to this show, you're somebody who likes real questions asked and you want real answers. That has been The opposite of what we've gotten from 95% of the corporate media in this country, of all media in this country, they have just been little parrots, squawk, squawk, parrots of the consensus. Ah, Fauci want a cracker. That's right. Fauci does want a cracker. Well, you know what I mean. Fauci, he's just always looking for a pat on the head, always looking for someone to tell him how great he is. Vanity, friends, from the lab coat tyrant was a major component of the the information operation that the American people were subjected to for the last 15, 16 months. That is what has really gone on here. Now that we've hit the unofficial kickoff to summer, the months ahead are always a great reminder of how lucky we are to be Americans. From time with friends and family, backyard barbecues, road trips, ball games, hitting the beach or the lake, you name it. It's also a great time to show how proud we are to be Americans. And part of the way we do that is by flying the American flag in front of our homes. And not just any American flag. I recommend one that you can rest assured won't tangle around a pole or get mildewed, torn, or shredded quickly. That's why you have to check out my friends at Allegiance Flag Supply. They make the highest quality American flags and accessories. And by the way, they do it right here in America. Go to showallegiance.com and enter promo code BUCK for 10% off your order. Check out not just the options they have for your home, but for any of you boat owners out there, but for any of you boat owners out there getting ready to put the boat back on the lake this weekend, they have everything you need for your boat or dock. Again, go to showallegiance.com. That website is showallegiance.com. And enter promo code BUCK for 10% off your order and get yours in time for Flag Day on June 14th. That's showallegiance.com. Enter promo code BUCK for 10% off. And let's fly the American flag with pride everywhere this summer. Make sure it's the right kind of flag, the one that won't get torn, mildewed, or tangled up. Showallegiance.com. Use promo code BUCK for 10% off. Let's get into a deep dive here about the possible cover up of the origins of COVID-19 and where we stand with the lab leak thesis. No longer right to call this a conspiracy theory. It was never right to call it a conspiracy theory. Our friend Jordan Schachtel, who's an investigative journalist, is with us right now. He has been a critic of Fauci, of lockdowns, of masks all along. So we greatly appreciate him for that. Jordan, people should uh, support your work on this. Where do they go? You can find me at dossier.substack.com. Now tell us, tell us what's, what is most striking to you 
uh, about where we stand right now with the release of these emails. What What is important for everybody to take away from this? There's a lot of emails out there from Dr. Fauci. Yeah, because the lab leak stuff and the gain-of-function stuff has been in the news so much, it was interesting to see the sense of urgency coming from the upper echelons of the U.S. government health bureaucracy with the National Institutes of Health and then uh, Fauci's NIAID. Whenever this issue came up, it seemed like they wanted to have an immediate phone call, um, whether it was with uh, you know, supposed journalists in the corporate press or you had Fauci's top colleagues and executives. And what, what seems like they weren't dismissing the, the lab leak thesis whatsoever. They were just trying to seemingly coordinate their messaging over the lab leak thesis. And then, you know, around the same time frame, what was interesting is that Fauci um, had publications out and his colleagues had public, public, publications um, completely dismissing lab leak as if this was not even a possibility. But the email said a very different thing. So what do you what does the evidence tell us right now about what's what's most likely to have occurred here and also the degree of of culpability of the of the Wuhan Institute of Virology? Where does the the data to borrow from Fauci point us right now? It seems that it's not only the Wuhan Institute of Virology and, you know, the Chinese Communist Party, but there's also a significant um, piece that's missing with um, concerning the U.S. government's health institutions' collaboration and funding of these agencies, and you know whether or not it happened um, with the endorsement of a particular presidential administration remains pretty much unknown. You know this gain of function stuff is so weird because they put a pause to it and then they resumed it, and then they were talking about you know these these bat viruses, and it, it was it's just very strange that the timeline. That, that you see here. And it, and it just leads to a lot more questions about what exactly was going on there on the U.S. side of things, because I think we're never going to get the answers from the Chinese communists. You know, they're never going to tell us directly uh, the, the truth of the matter. But we do have other you know, processes in the United States, which we could at least hold these bureaucrats to account. How do you think we can get accountability here, Jordan? I mean, you know, Fauci is running around saying, let's not point fingers at China. And now people are saying, well, it's not just China we're concerned about here, buddy. There's some that are saying that he he has misled to the point of perhaps even perjuring himself when he's talked before Congress. What, what do you think the accountability mechanisms can do here? And, and how, how do we go forward, given what we found out? That's the interesting thing. And I think all the signs are pointing to uh, an early, not an early retirement for Fauci, because he's been a government bureaucrat for an amazing 56 years. But there has to be some kind of accountability mechanisms. You can hope that, um, you know, at least GOP legislators can really push this issue hard and hopefully find at least some purple state Dems to agree to attempt to hold these people accountable, start holding hearings, start asking these people under oath, you know, what they meant when they were talking about these emails. And of course, these emails were under Freedom of Information Act. So hopefully, um, you know, these these people that represent us in Congress can get additional emails uh, about this issue and and continue to you know do what they can to get more information to the public. But the last thing I want right now, actually, even though I've been uh, you know trying to get Fauci sidelined and to retire for for eighteen months because of his gross incompetence, I, I think Fauci especially needs to be held accountable. 
What do you think are the what are the the greatest sins uh, that Fauci has created here? There's so many things. Um, It it seems the common theme in the in the emails was that Fauci was trying to protect the bureaucracy from any critiques or even just he wanted to project this sense onto the nation that he was kind of like this all knowing scientist, you know, this the foremost infectious disease expert that we kept hearing the corporate press echoing it over again to try to sell that, you know, the U.S. response to COVID-19 was based on science, whether it was social distancing, masks, uh, all these closures. And the reality was that there was never any evidence for any of this stuff. But Fauci was more, um, you know, as a as a really as a politician, he understood the power of crafting a narrative that works and he used the media to his benefit to craft these narratives but largely every single thing um it seemed every single thing was a lie uh, and it was based it was based on nothing you know this six foot social distancing and a lot of us you know you included especially have been saying this for a while like where's the evidence i'm not relying on fauci's credentials where's the evidence and, you know, the emails kind of go to show that they didn't really they were really too concerned with evidence. They were just more concerned with being in a position of authority. It seems to me, Jordan, that that a lot of this is was pushed by we pay, we have these, you know, large, expensive, cumbersome health bureaucracies here in America and a lot of places around the world. And and here we are. This was the their moment, so to speak. Right. This is what we have them for. And really, at the beginning of this pandemic, uh, if they had told us the truth, it was going to be we don't really know how to stop this from spreading. A lot of you are going to get it and it's going to take us at least a year to get a vaccine out there and and start getting to people's arms. So do your best. I mean, that was actually where they were. But they came up with this whole framework of mask, six foot of six feet of distancing, Lysol, your groceries, uh, you know, all all these things were being told. It's, it feels like they just came up with a plan so they could have a plan. Yeah, it, it seemed like they came up with a plan so they could be seen and perceived as doing something, uh, you know, morally and scientifically appropriate. And for Fauci, it paid off. Like Fauci won a one million dollar prize. He got a book deal. He had a Disney crew following him around shooting a documentary. I don't even know if the White House knew about that, which is kind of fascinating. But uh, Fauci, he, he won the battle for, um, you know, public uh, per, uh, public perception. The problem was just that the science wasn't on his side and he ended up screwing over, uh, you know, the entire country. And, and I think his decisions um, impacted not only the United States, but the entire world who looked to him for guidance. And he was really basically, you know, the equivalent of a quack, uh, quack doctor the entire time. We're speaking to Jordan Schachtel, investigative journalist who's been covering uh, COVID from, I mean, I I think I would say a contrarian perspective is fair. uh, And I've been doing the same thing, Jordan, because to go against the consensus in any way, you're considered some kind of, you know, radical contrarian on all this stuff. So I, I have to wonder, what is the the role of Peter Dajak. I'm not sure I'm saying his name right, but this guy Peter Dajak and all this, who was the the one who directed some of the funding to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. What do we know about this guy? Yeah, so it seems like he was running some kind of like middleman operation between the U.S. government. He actually, I've never interacted with this guy on social media and he's blocked me on like every single platform. So it's like, oh, that's kind of weird. 
but uh, he seemed to be the intermediary between the Chinese communists and, and the U.S. Uh, health bureaucracy, especially when it came to like funding this kind of, this sketchy research. They preferred not to do it directly. So he was like this like black market type situation, NGO, uh, very sketchy. There, there's so much sketchy stuff going on in that in that world, even though, you know, these government health institutions have a history of, of dangerous and reckless behavior. Um, they seem to, you know, try to find cutouts to avoid um, congressional scrutiny. And, and he seemed to be an integral player in that mess. Of all the decisions, Jordan, that have come down from the health bureaucrats during this, in retrospect, I mean, which is the one that you find the most egregious, whether it's the suppression of the lab leak theory, the enormous about face on masks, the uh, lockdown mantra, all this stuff, which is the one that for you is just the most inexplicable and de and destructive? Yeah, it just had to be the lockdowns and the messaging about the lockdowns and the confidence they expressed when they were really just um, winging it the entire time. And, and that's, you know, the most disappointing thing is how much damage they did to our global society because they expressed false confidence and really had no idea what was going on. I mean, we've been talking about this for so long that the lockdowns, um, had never been tried before on this scale in, in, in human history, and it was all based on a you know Chinese communist model out of out of Wuhan, China, and it was so destructive. And countries are still attempting lockdowns to this day. Australia just went into another lockdown. It, it's just it, the lockdowns I think have been by far the most damaging because it, it shuts down the economy, it creates um, you know a paranoid society, and, and it. It, it's going to take so many years to recover from that that, yeah, it's got to be the lockdowns. Do you think we're ever going to really find out what happened with this virus in the early days? I mean, do you think we're ever going to find out where it really came from and, and what the Chinese Communist Party did uh, to make sure that the world didn't know where it started? I hope so. And, and the role of social media in, in censoring these voices who were trying to talk about this, you know, there was a lot of legitimate expert virologists and um, you know other scientists in in biological fields who were trying to identify you know if any of this stuff was genetically engineered and and whatnot and and I think it's time to you know get these people back into the spotlight uh, unfortunately you know these these Facebook Twitter Instagram folks basically like censored these people out of the conversation and uh, marginalized them completely so we need to you know, elevate the voices of, of actual experts who can get to the bottom of this stuff. Jordan Schachtel, everybody, he's been on this for the whole time, from the very beginning. One of the few voices willing to be brave on this, because if you wanted to be correct, you had to be willing to go against the Fauciite consensus. Go to substack.dossier.com uh, for Jordan's latest. Jordan, thanks so much, man. Appreciate it. Thanks, Buck. There was an email on April 16th, an email exchange between you and NIH Director Francis Collins. The email sent to you said conspiracy theory gains momentum. And this, again, was the idea of the lab leak. Those emails, though, as you can see on the screen or I can see on the screen, was all redacted between you and Francis Collins. Yeah. Do you happen it, to remember? It, you know, do you remember? John, what was email? <laughs> John, they only took about 10,000 emails from me. Of course, I remember. I remember all 10,000 of them. 
Give me a break. <laughs> so, but to be clear, you're saying you don't remember or you can't tell us what, what was in no, the body of that exchange. I, I, I don't remember what's in that redacted. But, there, I mean, the idea, I think, is quite far-fetched that the Chinese deliberately engineered something so that they could kill themselves as well as other people. Uh, I, I think that's a bit far out, John. That's not what most of the people who are pushing the lab leak theory believe happened. But see, this is a, a version of what we've seen before from Fauci. Avoid the avoid the main argument by by uh, attacking these diversionary arguments. It's not that the Chinese intentionally released this virus in their own population first and, and then hope that because China has a billion people, they were going to come out ahead of the rest of the world, right? I mean, that's actually not the argument. Now, some people may be arguing that, but what, what many of us are saying is China was involved in doing this kind of research. It was uh, a place that the facilities, as we know, had already had leaks in the past, four leaks, I believe, that after the SARS scare, where you had about 700-plus people die globally, but that was, if you got SARS... Uh, you were in very, very dire situation and a much, much higher mortality than what you had from COVID-19. Uh, but the SARS situation created this sense of urgency for the need to study these kinds of viruses. And so what we're saying is that they were studying it and then it got out and there was gain of function research going on. So they weren't just they didn't just collect viruses and look at them and try to understand them. They collected viruses and were toying with them changing them and then one of those viruses that does occur naturally in nature got out of the lab and then spread all over the world and killed millions of people that's the the basis of the theory but you see what fauci wants to do is tell everybody oh they're they're just these crazy people out there who are talking nonsense there, there's just all this absurd stuff why should anything really in these emails be redacted Think about that for a moment. This isn't this isn't the CIA. They're, they're not worried about sources and methods. Why are there redactions in these emails from the the NIH, uh, you know, head of NIAID, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, which is under the umbrella of the National Institute of Health? Hmm. Well, Fauci is just full of it. He's, he's skating all over the place here trying to, as you know, I always say, evade accountability. Here he is on a, something near and dear to my heart. It's all talk about masks in these emails and how mass, basically mocking the notion that masks are going to save you from COVID. I mean, it's really not. It's just which we all know, right? Masks, they don't really do anything. Can we finally I love that we can finally say that without everyone freaking out. I mean, we say they don't do anything. You know, you may you may prevent yourself from, you know, getting wet if you go out in the rain by holding a Coke can over your head. But is that an effective means of stopping you from getting wet in a rainstorm? Right? I mean, at, at some point, it's just it's just dumb. It doesn't work well enough for anyone to care. And I think that's where we are with cloth masks against this aerosolized virus. But here's Fauci on that point specifically. Play 12. Well, you know, John, let's get real here. If you look at scientific information as it accumulates... What is going on in January and February, what you know as a fact, as data, 
guides what you tell people and your policies. If March, April, May occur, you accumulate a lot more information and you modify and adjust your opinion and your recommendation based on the current science and current data. So, of course, if we knew back then that a substantial amount of transmission was asymptomatic people, if we knew then that the data show that masks outside of a hospital setting are actually do work when we didn't know it then, if we realized all of those things back then, of course, mm -hmm. you're asking a question, would you have done something different if you know what you know now? Of course people would have done that. That's so obvious. Where's that data, Fouch, on the masks working outside of a hospital setting? Where, where's that data? Oh, you mean the lab studies with spray bottles? Yeah. Laughable garbage. Criticizing um, such things as the 1619 Project, you know, which tends to put that date as something uniquely American. Um, there was a lot of slavery going on around the world in, in the early 1600s. Uh, we fought the Civil War in order to put our original sin behind us. Uh, we passed the Voting Rights Act in 1965 in order to further enfranchise minorities in our country. It's been a long arc of trying to improve race relations in this country. But I think trying to completely denigrate and downgrade uh, American historical moments like 1776, 1787, 1965, critical moments, uh, is, is a mistake. But I don't think the government's any better at uh, prescribing what ought to be taught than the universities themselves. But they ought to be open to criticism about what they're doing. So what exactly is Mitch McConnell saying about the solution here? He he identifies when it comes to critical race theory much of the problem correctly. He un, he understands that CRT seeks to minimize, you know, the same way they accuse people of minimizing the role of slavery in in America from its origins and the 1619 project does exactly that. Uh we can say well the other side minimizes that we had a civil war in this country. A, a brutal, bloody civil war that killed hundreds of thousands of Americans, wounded many times more than that, grievously wounded people, lost eyes, legs, arms. And, and we fought a war to end slavery in this country. And then it, after that went through a, a century or so of uh, continued effort to make real the promise of equality fought for um, by the Union in the Civil War. And... We're just told that by, by CRT and by the 1619 Project, not enough, not enough, not even close, not acceptable. America is a racist, bad place. Really? Mitch McConnell pointed out that there was a lot of slavery going on in the world of the, of the 1600s. That's true. In fact, one of the uh, places with the longest reach when it came to the slave trade were the Barbary states of North Africa. This is something that is often not taught at all in schools, in fact. You want to talk about something that is uh, that is edited out of basic history for people. We fought our, for, our first foreign war against the Barbary pirates, right, to the shores of Tripoli, 
because President Jefferson had had enough of our people, Americans, being enslaved by Muslim Arabs in North Africa, taken off of ships. The men worked to death and the women used in sexual slavery for harems of wealthy Muslim Arabs in places like Tripoli and what is presently uh, today, Algeria and Tunisia and Morocco. Right? Th- that was going on for hundreds of years. Straight up slavery, the Muslim slave trade of European Christians and American Christians was what was happening. And they went as far as these slaving uh, raids or sla- slave raids went as far as uh, Iceland, Ireland, all up and down the coasts of Italy and Spain. They would seize white Christians and put them into into uh, slavery. And in fact, they often were worked in mines in North Africa until they died. And they died rapidly because of the absolutely horrific conditions. And the women were taken and prized for uh, for sexual slavery in the harems. That's what was going on for hundreds of years, friends. You, you don't often hear about this, do you? This is not something that's really taught very much. But it's true. All throughout the 1600s, all throughout the 1700s, this was reality. And the Ottoman Empire, which is often talked about by uh, by leftist historians as this you know, great and sophisticated and powerful, was powerful. And it did end up uh, accumulating a lot of other cultures' knowledge and, and advancements. You could call it cultural appropriation if you want, including the Byzantine Empire, the Eastern Orthodox Christian Empire that came before it. But the Ottoman Empire was built as a slave empire. Does, does anybody want to try to go back in history and, and look at this and, and come to a different conclusion? I, I welcome them to try. Massive slave trade from the Muslim Ottomans. Uh, the slave trade existed in sub-Saharan Africa Be, uh, at the time of the transatlantic slave trade. And in fact, as we know, the uh, the white slave traders who would show up along the the West African coast of what is uh, today the coast of, well, coast of West Africa, including places like Nigeria and uh, and some of the smaller African states alongside it, uh, they they would use the existing slave network inside of Africa where tribes would enslave other tribes. And then they would be sold to the white transatlantic slave traders in what is unquestionably a horrific, inhumane, deeply immoral practice. Uh, many, uh, well, I, I can't even tell you the numbers, there'd be estimates, but a large percentage of those uh, those enslaved Africans died in that tran- uh, in transit, held in, in just the most disgraceful conditions imaginable. Um, so this, this is just to say that these are horrific things. They should not have been done. But human beings have been terrible to each other for a long time. This is not new. And this is not unique to America. So if we're really going to talk about this, if we're going to discuss the history of slavery and oppression, let's really discuss it through history and, and all over the world. The Aztec Empire, you'll often hear about uh, how the, uh, the conquest of the Americas involved the, the terrible treatment of the indigenous population here. 
right? And now you have this new new term that is meant to bring greater attention to indigenous populations, BIPOC, right? Black, indigenous people and people of color. Well, the indigenous population in the Americas was, when you're talking about the Aztec Empire, for example, they were not only engaged in massive slavery, enslaving tribes and treating people like property, but also massive human sacrifice. So we're going to talk about morality. You start to look at what's going on here in places. And remember, we're talking about 1500s. We're talking about 1600s. We're talking about periods of time here that are roughly equivalent. You could go back in into slavery in the Bible and the Jews in Egypt. And right. There's a reason why throughout history, when you look for slavery, you find the Roman Empire built on slavery. This you know, human oppression of other humans has been a constant. In this country, we actually had, thanks to the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, thanks to the basic framework of our government, we had the, the beginnings of the end of human bondage and, and slavery put in place here. It wasn't as fast as we wanted it to be. It wasn't as fast as it should have been, right? And that's, it's understandable that we can go back and say that we wish this had moved along um, much more quickly than it did. But to ignore that process and to pretend that there haven't been tremendous sacrifices made um, by many people outside of the minority community. Isn't it fascinating how you, you never get to say in, in this country, you're, you're told uh, under critical race theory and the 1619 Project view of America, you're told that you, there's a degree of, of guilt that you have just by nature of being white. Right. You, if you're white, you're part of the oppressive class in America. This is central to critical race theory. This is central to the teachings of of the um, deconstructionists like uh, Derrida, these far left intellectuals. I mean, really, if, if you go back and see, you, you can trace critical race theory to those who believe in who are putting forward moral relativism and the fashionable Marxist philosophies of European professors and European intellectuals from the 1960s and the 1970s. That's where we get all this critical race theory teaching. It's really the, the beginnings of it, the origins of it. Um, and then critical race theory just tries to codify it into law. Critical race theory takes it a step further and says, well, we're going to explicitly pursue political power as a component of this. And uh, that, that's where we currently are. But you'll notice that it's, it's never something you can say, well, you know, my, my ancestors... My ancestors fought in the Union. You know, I, I lost and some of my some of my ancestors died fighting to end slavery. So do, do I get if I get the downside of being white in America today under the description of race relations forwarded by critical race theory? Do I get to make a case that, well, my ancestors actually some of them gave their lives fighting against the practice of slavery? Does that? No, no, of course. And then you get into why am I even being held to any standard based upon my ancestors? You should not hold the son guilty for the sins of the father. You certainly shouldn't hold somebody guilty for the sins of their great, great, great grandfathers. And yet, does CRT grapple with any of this? No. It is racial Marxism. It is meant to tear this country apart and elevate uh, the few at the expense of the many. Elevate those who run the apparatus 
under the pretense that they're helping those who are oppressed, but really they just want to be the ones doing the oppressing, right? Otherwise, explain to me what Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden and, and all these prominent Democrats, what do they think they're really accomplishing with this? At the end, it's just about power. It's certainly not about an accurate reading of history. That's fine. I'm all for an accurate reading of history. I'm not for the politicized and uh, an exaggerated version of specific points in history meant to justify abuse of constitutional rights and equality under the law today. Our view is that um, uh, it's going to take time for workers to regain confidence in the safety of the workplace, reestablish childcare, school and commuting arrangements and finish getting vaccinated. And even when individuals get their first dose, we've seen a huge increase in that. As I started the briefing talking about, it's about a five to six week cycle. So we have expected that to have an impact. At the same time, as we look at all of the data, uh, we know that our economy is growing uh, faster than any time than any time in the last 40 years. We're creating an average of 500,000 jobs a month, up from 60,000 a month before uh, the president took office. And we're continuing to put in place policies and measures. Every decision that this White House has made, I would argue, has made the job situation worse. Uh, Every decision that uh, the White House has put into place has, there's a lot that, you can point to and say, well, the economy, you know, is going to run at a certain pace. You know, there's there's only so much damage in a certain period of time that the Biden presidency can do to the economy. And given that they've come into a period here in America's history where we just went through a virus and lockdown created recession instead of one that's actually a, a cyclical economic recession, Sure, there's going to be a lot of wind at the back of the economy right now, but it's like we've got people on a it's like we have an amazing sailboat and the sail is finally down. And sure, it's it's going in the right direction. It's it's getting, you know, it's, it's picking up speed. But the people that are actually on deck, the Biden administration officials that are making decisions here they're doing everything to, to slow down and mess up that process. They want to spend more money than they should. They want to raise taxes. They want to regulate things. They want to focus on, on punishing businesses and punishing prosperity. And it's just, it's maddening to watch. But on the worker shortage, they don't seem to understand the role that a big part of the Biden rescue package was right was that there was supposed to be all of this um, the the Biden rescue package sent all these checks to people and in some cases you're going to be making more money to stay home that has had an effect that's why a number of states have said they're not going to do that anymore they're they're not going to be distributing those extra unemployment funds Uh, they've said enough is enough and this this idea that workers aren't confident in the safety of the workplace. Yeah, there are a lot of people out there that are still paranoid about COVID. I get it. But if you've been vaccinated and you won't go into your you won't go into your office and you're supposed to, you've got to wonder, Okay, well, at what point do you think it is going to be safe? When does the mentality change? Oh, one one thing I thought so interesting on vaccinations. I meant to get to this. You know, I've been telling you all along that that a big problem here for me 
with the way that the public health bureaucrats have approached all of this has been to suggest that they have data and facts on their side for all these decisions. And there's nothing arbitrary. There's there's no policy judgment involved here. It's just this is what it is. We're telling you what the decision is. It's like parents speaking to children because I said so. I mean, here's the actual head of the CDC, Rochelle Walensky, being asked about the vaccination goal for the Biden administration of 70 percent. Why is that the goal? Play six. We keep hearing that we need to reach 70 percent. Why is the 70 percent number so effective, so important, rather important? You know, we want to get the majority of America vaccinated. And after we get to 70 percent, my goal is going to be to get to 80 percent. I think what we really understand is that this virus is an opportunist and it will go to places where people are not vaccinated. And so um, you are safe if you are vaccinated. You are not safe if you are not vaccinated. And, and my job is to keep America safe. So we will work to get to 70 percent on june 4th and then we will continue to work to get beyond that so why is it 70 oh that's just the they just came up with that number now i'm not saying that's not a worthy goal or that's not you know a milestone of progress i am saying that they often just sort of pick something or they say this is this is what the goal is this is when it's safe safe when you're talking about a virus like this has has always been a relative term it's always been a relative term. I mean, there's there's no such thing as perfect safety. And in fact, a, I think a big part of the of the wrongness, if you will, all along here from the public health bureaucrats has been to create this belief that if you listen to them, you're going to be really, really safe. And if you don't, you're reckless when that's just not true. I did all the stuff that they made me do. I didn't want to do it, but all the masking and all this stuff. And it took me a year to get COVID. And I sit here and say, so all those times when I was masked up and all this stuff that I did, it, what, what was the point of it? There was no point. I got COVID anyway. So why was I being put through all that? Oh, in the, in the hopes that maybe I wouldn't get it? Well, given the kind of things that I was doing in the life that I was leading, going into offices, going in stores and being around people, even with all the restrictions, what, what, they, were, what they were promising me which was that I'd be I'd be protected. That's the implicit promise. That's just not true. They couldn't protect me. They couldn't protect any of us. But they acted like they could and made decisions based upon that false promise. So, yeah, why is it 70 percent? Well, because it'll be 80 percent after it's 70 percent, just like with so many other things, making it up as they go along. Does it make sense that the same company who controls half of all online retail also passively eavesdrops on your private conversations at home? What about the idea that a single company controls 90% of internet searches, runs your email service, and gets to track everything you do on your smartphone? Big tech is more powerful than most countries are, and they profit by exploiting your personal data. It's time to put a layer of protection between your online activity and these tech juggernauts. And that's why I use ExpressVPN. All right, think about how much of your life is on the internet these days. Unfortunately, every site you visit Every video you watch or message you send gets tracked and data mined. But when you run ExpressVPN on your device, the software hides your IP address, something big tech can use to personally identify you. So ExpressVPN makes your activity harder to trace and sell to advertisers. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your internet data to keep you safe from hackers and eavesdroppers on your network. 
And ExpressVPN does all this without slowing your connection. That's why it's rated the number one VPN service by CNET and Wired. What I like most about ExpressVPN is how easy it is to use. Download the app on your phone or computer, tap one button, and you're protected. Stop handing over your personal data to the big tech monopoly that mines your activity and sells your information. Protect yourself with the VPN I trust to keep me safe online. Visit expressvpn.com slash buck. That's expressvpn.com slash buck to get three extra months free on a one-year package. Go to this website now. Protect yourself today. Expressvpn.com slash buck to learn more. Members of uh, the United States Senate have chosen to view through a political lens a massive security breach on the U.S. Capitol. I did some research this morning and I uh, discovered that the legislation to create the 9-11 Commission in 2002 passed the U.S. Senate by a vote of 90 to 8. That's a lot of Democrats. That's a lot of Republicans. Imagine if the 9-11 legislation failed to pass because Republicans didn't want to embarrass President Bush, for example, because 9-11 happened on his his watch. Uh, This needs to be viewed as a security issue. Uh, It was an attack on the cradle of our democracy during a constitutional function. And it demonstrates that there are major gaps in the jurisdiction and the command and control relationships between the Capitol Police, the National Guard, the Secret Service, and a host of other law enforcement organizations. Jay Johnson saying, imagine if the 9-11 legislation failed to pass and and explicitly comparing 9-11 to January 6th as as attacks on our democracy. Let's get some perspective here from our friend Pedro Gonzalez, who is now associate editor at Chronicles magazine. Pedro, great to have you. Hey, Buck, always good to be here. There's just a part of me that wants to throw my hands up in the air and and shout profanity when they do this, Pedro. But I know that's not that's not really helpful. Right. So so take us through (laughs) might feel good. Take us through your sense of how they expect anybody uh, to take them seriously when they're going to compare the, you know, the 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 destruction of multiple buildings, uh, skyscrapers, the deaths of almost 3000 people, an attack on us by Al Qaeda, which intended to eradicate American civilization, uh, if it could, with what happened on on January 6th, a riot where people were taking selfies inside the Capitol and talking to Capitol Hill police and dressed up with, uh, you know, dressed up as QAnon shaman. How does this happen? How do we get to the point where the establishment and the elites think this is a reasonable comparison? I don't know that they actually think that. And I think it might actually be irrelevant if they really do. In other words, people like AOC might really actually think that what she lived through is the equivalent of combat experience. And then there are others who are saying that, but they don't really believe it. But in either case, the outcome is the same. You're you're seeing this kind of phalanx that is closing in on opposition towards this commission. And the reality of this commission, I think, is is that it's going to justify a kind of Patriot Act 2.0 federal agenda in the sense that, well, okay, because 
I think uh, calling it a commission is kind of funny because they're already like, there's already a conclusion. I think, like, so they're they're basically building a commission around a conclusion because the purpose of the commission, of course, is, is to investigate it. But they're I mean, like, they already know what they want to find, right? They they just want to, I guess, uh, add some window dressing to it. But I think that the the real and very clear threat is that this commission will be used to justify the expansion, uh, the size and scope of the federal government in what we're going to be told is domestic uh, counterinsurgency, counterextremism. So what does that mean in practice? It means, well, maybe the FBI needs uh, a bigger purview of what they're allowed to do and how they're allowed to infringe on your privacy. Uh, maybe they need more control over cryptocurrency because, you know, like uh, guys that were involved in the people that were uh, around the events of January 6th, uh, traffic in crypto. So, you know, this is a decentralized currency and it's very dangerous. It's associated with white supremacists. So this, this is something that we need to kill uh, in the cradle. Or we need to step up the post, uh, post office, uh, their efforts to, you, you, you thought the postman was reading your mail. Uh, he's actually checking your social media. I didn't even know that there's a, apparently there's a, a, a U.S. postal, uh, like law enforcement arm. And this is what they're actually doing. They're trawling through social media and leaked documents in the intercept show that they've, they take an interest in everything from pro-Trump postings to anti-lockdown postings on social media. And I think this is the direction that this will go in. We need to step up these efforts to root out extremism, which really just means the federal government will have more uh, control of your life and be able to infringe on what little rights you still have left even more on the grounds that this is about fighting uh, extremism and specifically white supremacy. And I think that's really the point of, like you ask, how did we get here in a kind of rational way? Well, there's nothing rational about it. They're using the cudgel of white supremacy, the scarecrow of that, to beat opposition into silence. And it's working. It's amazing, Pedro, because this is really, in a a sense, just creating um, a, a new a new. Uh, approach to the same weaponization of of the apparatus, right? There's a new lie here, but it reminds me a lot of what we went through with the Russia collusion situation, right? Russia collusion for four years of the Trump presidency was used in order to justify outright uh, journalism hostility. I mean, the, the profession of journalism effectively viewed itself as an opposition to Donald Trump. And they used the Russia, the Russia lie of, of Trump worked with the Russians to steal the election. And by the way, they said the election was stolen, as we all know. That was a that was a, a prominent theme all along. Hillary Clinton herself said the Russians hacked our democracy. So right. it's interesting that they, they seem to be accusing. And, and now, of course, it's, oh, the the white supremacist insurrection that could come back at any moment in time. Right. There are real problems that this country has and things that need to be dealt with. But they focus in on these largely fanciful. There's always a, a some grain or some basis of truth in this, just like Soviet propaganda. There was always some flimsy basis for for most of it um, right. and that it was wildly exaggerated. This seems to be the playbook now. Instead of battling with us on, you know, the best way to grow jobs or instead of battling with us on what what U.S. foreign policy should really look like going forward. It's the other side is evil and must be stopped at any cost. The other side being conservatives, anybody that stands athwart Biden and says, what are you doing, you crazy old man? Right. No, that's exactly right. 
And again, the, the specter of white supremacy is paralyzing for a lot of people. They don't know how to react to it, except but to acquiesce. Like, okay, well, we can agree to a commission, but promise that you'll limit the scope to actual extremists. It, like, that's a total, like, you've already lost. If, you, if you've already, if, if that's where you're at mentally, you've already given up. And you're, you're um, it's not going to end well for you or for the people that you're representing. And I think about how right now, I think we might have spoken about this before, the, the Pentagon is actually doing this right now, where uh, under the pretext of combating extremism in their own ranks, this is really funny, they're actually looking to work with a private company to circumnavigate First Amendment rights and surveil their troops. And that's where it starts, but then, of course, it, it expands and goes on to everyone else. And it, it's really interesting that you're seeing, like you said, the, the like even the, the foreign policy apparatus, like the Pentagon, is increasingly turning its eye toward domestic affairs. And the attitude of the bureaucracy in the Pentagon and elsewhere is that they're, they're dealing with what is essentially a low-intensity uh, insurgency within the United States, which is what we've been dealing with in the Middle East, where you know, we, we need people patrolling all the time. Uh, we have to win hearts and minds. Like That's basically what you're seeing in the United States. And like you said, it's, it's being framed as a response to this real existential nation-ending threat of white supremacy. Uh, there's a really interesting uh, analogy here that I think is, is it's, it's uh, specifically about gun violence. There was a study published in a journal of interpersonal violence pretty recently, and the authors of this study concluded that mass shootings are actually not com- like that common. Like you're, you're more likely to, to like get eaten by a shark than, than uh, end up in a mass shooting. Something along like something really, you know, really rare along those lines. And and the authors, so the question that they have to answer, considering that that was their conclusion, well, why does it seem the opposite? Like, why why do people, why are so many people terrified of, of getting uh, caught in a mass shooting? And these authors concluded that uh, they call it the social construction of violence. That, like, surprise, they concluded that media basically creates this false representation of, of, an, of an issue, and in this case, mass shootings. That, that's literally what they uh, attributed it to, was... Uh, because the media has made people believe that mass shootings are a much larger problem than they actually are. And that the social construction of, of violence in the case of mass shootings, I think it applies to everything else, like white supremacy. Like the reason that people really think that white supremacy is an existential threat is because that is what the media has told them. That's what academia has told them. The, the guy that's in charge of implementing this uh, counter-extremism program for the Pentagon, his name is Bishop Garrison, uh, he has explicitly connected his support to the 1619 project to what he's doing with the Pentagon now. And in his, and he has written in his name that white supremacy is a nation ending threat that needs to be dealt with as such. Speaking of Pedro Gonzalez, he is assistant editor at Chronicles magazine. Uh, Pedro, just uh, switching gears for a second here. I, I saw a, a tweet from you on this and I wanted to give you an opportunity to expand on it on air. Cause I, I agree uh, with your sentiment and we, we keep hearing about and the White House has even had to address the the labor shortage. And to this, I always want to say, well, there there's there's a labor shortage. If you view this as something that, uh, you know, that, that that cannot be addressed by something called higher wages, which which is usually how you could address a labor shortage. And I worry that Republicans here once again uh, because they're just so they're so into the corporate donor class pro business narrative of things 
don't see this as an opportunity to be like, yeah, this is why we need secure borders. Because when businesses can't get people to come in paying what they pay, they're going to have to pay people more to get them to come in. That's actually what we want to happen. We want uh, wages to rise. Right. And I think when you have this discussion, you should start by saying, let's separate how we feel about the the unemployment benefits uh, in terms in terms of ideology. Like if you're a conservative, like you have these kind of reflexive responses. Right. That's understandable. But let's try to separate how we feel about the unemployment benefits um, for just for a moment. Basically, because the GOP at the same time that it's telling people that it's a working class party, it opposes these unemployment benefits. It also opposes raising the minimum wage. It also opposes private sector unionization. It also doesn't want to stem the tide of legal immigration. The GOP loves legal immigration, right? Do you see the problem here? We're working class, but we we uh, we totally reject every way to help the actual working class. And all the things I just outlined, whether you, like I said, whether you agree with them or not, and, and maybe there are like two that you agree with and like three that you don't, but all of these things are proven ways to in, basically increase people's lot. The GOP opposes all of them. And they're doing that at the same time they're telling you we're a working class party. And if you're opposed to the minimum wage and unionization, then what's the alternative? We're restricting uh, immigration as much as possible, which increases, a, which creates a tight labor market, right? Uh, so that like that, that should be a good thing. But of course, we were in this weird position where we haven't decreased levels of immigration. Actually, at COVID actually kind of did that for us, uh, ironically. Um, and but we have what people are calling an artificially tight labor market because unemployment benefits, uh, the enhanced unemployment benefits are allowing people to subsist. Um, and and so people, like I said, because that's in their eyes artificial, somehow it's not okay. But I've spoken, and of course, there's always going to be moochers, like people that will just not work and they'll scrape by on, on the benefits, which won't help them very much for long because inflation and all that. But I've also spoken to people who worked in Amazon warehouses, and they were able to get by on unemployment, put themselves through vocational, like get uh, vocational training for a, for a much better career. And like I, I interviewed a couple of, I'm, I'm going to write about this, but that's, that's what they did with their benefits. They got training, they got new skills, uh, and they're going to move on to a much, much better job that allows them to actually have a life and not work three dead-end jobs at one time. And and the answer that I got from one guy was, I'm not going back to the Amazon warehouse. Like, And, and if I can basically get by on, on benefits until I get the skills that I need to get a better job, then that's what I'm going to do. And, and like, he's not eating lobster every night. Like it's actually pretty difficult for him to get by and like pay rent and stuff. But at the same time that he's doing that, he's uh, in the evenings, he's getting vocational training. Uh, it's something to do with engineering and he's like, he's going to be set when this is done. And, but that was the thing that really stuck with me was he said, I'm not going back to the warehouse. And, and, but of course Republicans are not considering this at all. Like as far as they're concerned, people like that, they're, well, they're lazy. You know, like how dare you not want to go slave away in Jeff Bezos's warehouse? And again, I think that the the stark hypocrisy of this is they're saying that at the same time that they're telling people that they're the working class party. Pedro Gonzalez, Chronicles Magazine assistant editor. Pedro, thank you so much. Thank you. No, it's amazing because we were talking about how important it was for everyone to get vaccinated, what a big deal it was to get vaccinated. So I thought that was all built in already. But getting that shot 
really was Doesn't an amazing it? feeling. It, it 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 hits you. Did you it cry? Really, <laughs> it, it, I, 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 I I cry at you know I cry at movies. I didn't cry at the at the at the <laughs> shot, but you know it was a moment where where you realize okay this is it, and it wasn't so much because I felt that I'm at high risk because we're being careful and I'm healthy and I'm young and all that, but at the same time it's knowing that each of us doing our part is getting through this because we don't get through this unless you know the vast majority of the population gets that first shot and then a few months later gets that second shot that's how we get through it and it's something that everyone can do and we're just seeing canadians come out in such strong numbers all across the country to say yeah i want this covid thing to end i want to get back to normal and the way to do that is to make sure everyone even that crusty old uncle who resists or that friend who's skeptical encourage them convince them uh, tell them that they need to get to get vaccinated because this is how we get through it how the heck did this guy become prime minister of canada canada what's going on i like canadians they're great people it's like america jr up there what what, what this guy is really your uh, i know our president is biden's so here our uh, our brothers and sisters up to the up to the north, they probably are saying to themselves, are "You really gonna you really gonna poke fun at us? At least our guys of sound mind, which is I guess technically true, but they never take into account here a huge. And this is just what made me think about this right now. A huge part of this is what about those who have recovered? Increasingly, the data seems uh, seems to show that if you've had the virus, you're immune, perhaps forever, certainly for a long time." certainly as long as what they're expecting the vaccines to give you immunity for. So why don't they ever talk about that? No, you must get the shot. Shut up and listen. Hmm. I don't know about that. It's not going to be uniform throughout the country, John, because if you look at the map of the percentage of people in different states that have reached a certain level of vaccinated people, certain percentage, that if you have a very high percentage of people vaccinated, you're not going to see a substantial blip. You may see a little, but not anything that even resembles a surge. What my concern is, is in those states in which you have relatively few compared to others, people vaccinated. When you're below 50 percent of the people being vaccinated, that's when you're going to have a problem. I think given the country as a whole, the fact that we have now about 50 percent of adults fully vaccinated and about 62% of adults having received at least one dose as a nation, I, I'm, I feel fairly certain you're not going to see the kind of surges we've seen in the past. What I am concerned about are those states in which the level of vaccination is low, that you may continue to see higher levels of cases as we get into the summer. You could, you know, here and there and the percentages and I'm worried about the plateau and you don't have enough masks on. So the droplets may come out of your mask. And, you know, what what will it take for us to be free of this Fauci? I I think we're only free of him when we decide that we can't take it anymore, that we've just we've reached the point of Fauci, no return. Uh, We just have to say that. This guy should never he for me, he triggers me at some level. Not that I'm somebody who really can get triggered, but he he does that. I I view this guy as (laughs) 
he, he upsets me the second I have to hear his his crap. Uh, and, and here he is saying, you know, he doesn't think there's going to be surges like we saw. Gee, that's a really smart thing to say. You don't think that we're going to see a massive wave of the pandemic again, even after we've gotten over half the population vaccinated? I'm I'm glad to hear that. You'll note that he doesn't, as I've been saying, he, he doesn't even take into account the amount of naturally derived immunity that exists in this country. He, he doesn't take that into account at all. And that's a huge number of people. Now, a lot of them have also gotten vaccinated, so they'll be included. They'll be double protected, in a sense, in the vaccination numbers. But there are a lot of people. There are people like me who had COVID for sure. And based on all the science we know are immune and they want me to get a shot that does have some side effects for some people. And they can't explain to me why scientifically that's actually going to make me better off than what I currently have. They don't even try to explain this. I don't. They just say, do it, do it, do it. Well, these are the same people that told us the lab leak theory was absurd. These are the same people that have been wrong at so many critical moments throughout the course of this pandemic. And we're to forget that we're to act like we haven't seen that they can be tremendously wrong. I mean, catastrophically wrong at various points in this. So I, I certainly have not forgotten this. I haven't let this go. I want more of a discussion about naturally derived immunity from COVID-19. And I want that factored into all this public health measures and all the rest of it. All right, moving to voter voter rights legislation. Now, this is a, this is fascinating. Uh, Democrats on this point are so shameless. We still now have this this it's a narrative that anything that Republicans try to do, even if they make uh, even if they make more if more votes happen as a result of their laws, if they make it easier for people to vote, but any restrictions intended to stop illegal or even accidentally uh, incorrect voting, which does also happen. Democrats jump on it right away as an attack on our democracy. This is one of their favorite phrases. An attack. Remember Ru- the Russian hacking, an attack on our democracy. January 6th, an attack on our democracy. Georgia's Voter uh, Protection Laws or whatever, Voter Integrity Act, an attack on, you know how, we know what I'm going to say. Here is Jen Psaki, the red-haired propagandist-in-chief of this White House. Uh, Here she is, play two. I would say that first, um, he believes that the Texas legislation is a part of a concerted attack on our democracy uh, being advanced, as we see have seen, not just in Texas, as you well know, but in states across the country on the basis of the same repeatedly disproven lies that led to the assault on our nation's capital on January 6th. Uh, so that is, of course, of great concern to the president. He thinks that must stop. It must be easier, not harder for all eligible voters to vote, to register and cast their ballot. We need to move forward and not backward. And the fact of the matter is that the Texas legislation would make it harder to vote in a state where it is already too hard for many people to vote. But it's not the only state where we're seeing this troubling trend. But this is one of the reasons why he asked his vice president, or he, she asked for it, but he uh, certainly was uh, was uh, uh, thrilled to have her leading the effort on voting rights moving forward, given this is a huge priority to him and a huge priority to her as well. 
Ah, did you see this? This was important. This was the anatomy of the left's authoritarian propaganda displayed for all. But you have to you have to pay close attention. You have to understand how and why they do what they do. Notice that the attack on our democracy that this voter that these voting uh, laws that they're they're trying to pass here voter integrity acts across in states across the country they are tied into the January 6th attack on our uh, on our democracy because people this is what she's saying this is and this is important because there were people in the January 6th riot which they call an insurrection and which they say is an attack on our democracy because they didn't believe the election outcome and that that it was legitimate. And because these voter uh, integrity laws that are being passed in red states across the country are rooted in the concern that there could be cheating in an election and they want to make it harder for there to be cheating in an election, the people that are supporting uh, laws like what's passed in Georgia and Texas are basically the same and are constituting the same attack on our democracy as the January 6th insurrection. You see, this is what they do. This is how they weaponize the January 6th narrative against everybody across the country who stands in the way of the Biden administration. I know it's unseemly, it's grotesque what they're doing, but I want you to be very clear on how they do it and what they're doing um, because, unfortunately, this stuff is effective. Unfortunately, it certainly fires up the left-wing base, and it goes even even beyond that uh, to be something that makes it harder for you to be a conservative without having to deal with those kinds of attacks having to deal with being lumped in with the January uh, 6th insurrectionists, right? And just the, the snide, the nasty tone they take about all this as well. I mean, here's, here's Brooklyn, Brooklyn elitist Chris Hayes over at MSNBC on auditing the results in Arizona. Play 13. Now, what is going on in Arizona with the ballot recount? Almost seems like cosplay. It's like a, a children's summer camp where they get to pretend to be wizards and witches at Hogwarts. There are a bunch of MAGA volunteers pretending to be conducting a recounter and audit and counting ballots. But here's the thing. They're doing it with actual ballots. Those are the ballots. Because the Arizona Republicans use the power they have over the machinery of the state to actually turn them over to a private company and volunteers. And so this audit is attacking the most fundamental, crucial cornerstone of a functioning democracy. The audit, notice what he did here. The audit is attacking a crucial, fundamental cornerstone of our democracy. Isn't that a fascinating psychological operation he's running here, a psyop? Audits are a crucial cornerstone of our democracy of our democratic process of voting in elections that's the reason we have audits but now you'll notice that actually doing what is within the system they pretend is an attack on the system 
by actually checking to make sure that the result is what we've been told the result is, we are undermining the results. Oh, it's like I've said all along. This would be like accusing the other team of cheating in football when their coach throws a challenge flag. Throwing a challenge flag is not cheating. Those are the rules. You are not breaking the rules by doing so, but you see, it's propaganda. You see, this is storytelling from the left. Oh, they're, they're assaulting our democracy by checking the work of our democracy. Not allowed. Not allowed. And what makes this even more outrageous is that they, the left, the Democrats, spend four years challenging and, and undermining through a special counsel, through a legal mechanism based on lies, based on fabricated evidence from the FBI, based on absurd rumors treated as truth by the intelligence community. They, they use the process as a weapon to create a special counsel against Donald Trump for four years. And now they're going to lecture us on attacks on democracy. Now they're going to act like we're the ones that need to learn a lesson here. I'm sorry. It's just too much after a while. It's really just too much to take. I mean, I won't let them get away with it, but I do have to, I do have to just gather myself here because it's so outrageous. It's so dishonest, but the press corps in this country in general, journalism in general has turned into partisan hackery openly I mean, they they view themselves as on a team working for a goal. And the goal is the destruction and the the eradication of conservatism in America and of the Republican Party. If they could outlaw the GOP, they would. And I don't want to say that out loud too many times because it might give them some ideas. But how would they do it? Well, they'd say that the GOP was part of what was was the party of the insurrection and that Donald Trump was the leader of the GOP who called for the insurrection and that it is an attack on our democracy itself. And the only way to have true accountability would be to forever ban the GOP in American public life. I don't think they'll be able to do that, but I can tell you this, and I think you know it's true. If they could, they would. And in many ways, that's terrifying enough. That's right. It's day 70 since Kamala Harris was appointed. The borders are. Uh, but she's yet to visit the border. She's yet to hold a formal press conference. She's going to the Central American countries, but not to solve the crisis on our border. She's going to those countries for a photo op to stand next to world leaders uh, to have to plaster out there when she decides to run for president uh, and to bust up and, and increase her foreign policy chops. This is a trip that's about Kamala Harris. It's not a trip about the children at the border. Make no mistake. It is indeed about Harris's political aspirations. And that's why she she knows that she she doesn't want to be tasked with uh, or, or I should say saddled with the reputational damage of not being able to fix the border as the borders are. And as I've been telling you all along, Democrats have no interest in in actually fixing the border. That is not what they seek to do. They like this situation of a de facto open border. They like the continuation of the lawlessness down there. They just see this 
as running up the scoreboard for Democrat votes and future Democrat political victories. So they're not going to change this. They just ended the Remain in Mexico policy officially this week. Now, what reasonable person can say that the Remain in Mexico policy wasn't a good idea? If you actually want people to stop gaming our system, pretending that they're going to get asylum when they're really not, but they know this is a way to get into America, to get into the American interior, and then there will be no further enforcement. And so from there, it's all over. They know that. They're, they're aware of that. And that's the whole point. right? They know what's going to happen here. Uh, but I just think it's funny that yeah, Kamala's going down to Central America. You know, she's stepping out on the world stage now. That's right. Man, I wonder what the I got to check what the Vegas odds are on Kamala Harris takes over for Joe Biden before the end of his first term. I, I've got to think. They, I think I feel like if I were a, if I were the odds maker on this one or if I were the one that that got to put out the estimate on this, I would say that you I'd, I'd give you I'd give you two to one odds just because, yes, maybe Biden does want to finish out his first term. But I think it's two to one odds that that's fair uh, that Kamala. So so two to one in favor of Joe Biden finishing out his first term. But that still means there's a really good chance that Kamala Harris takes over before the first term. And then what would be the odds that I say that she that she stands and runs for the second term? So Joe doesn't, you know, so there's, there's she takes over. So she becomes the president before the end of Joe's first term. And then there's she runs a campaign, uh, you know, or, or, or she runs basically in the campaign season. Well, no, actually, I, I scrap all that. I, I think she is going to take over. I, I was trying to separate out, let's say, having her take over next year from at the very end. But no, I, I think the move here is Joe Biden steps down in uh, 2023 at the end of 2023 and then in 2024 Kamala Harris is the president running for re-election as an incumbent I, th- I think that's the move that they probably pull here um, but yeah Kamala with the border with so many other things she just she just gets to be Kamala she doesn't have to show results she doesn't have to have any any strategic genius at work here she just has to show up and she could even she could even have failures doesn't matter as long as she's Kamala Harris and the Democrat apparatus is behind her. Uh, she's she's in a position where she may become president of the United States. I think we have to get used to that thought that she will be president. How long? I don't know. But she's going to end up being president of the United States. And as we talked about yesterday on the show, I mean, Barack Obama has already said this administration is a lot of the people from his administration pushing the same ideas, pursuing the same goals. So we really just have a third term of Obamaism here, which is this this American Marxist approach to governance. Right. That's that's where it all got going. You go back to 2008 and Biden continues to carry that torch and he's just going to hand it off to Kamala. And this is now almost on autopilot for the Democrats. We have to shake things up. We have to be the ones that make the case and hold up a mirror to reality here such that we can take power away from these Democrat Marxists. That's what has to happen here. 
otherwise, I think they've got the they've got the whole game plan. We just have to be honest enough with ourselves that we can see it too. And it definitely involves a president, Kamala, soon. Critics slam champagne socialist AOC, the congresswoman from Queens, for not helping her grandmother after she posted photos of her Puerto Rican home ravaged by Hurricane Maria and blamed Trump. This is a classic moment in socialist mentality, my friends. So AOC makes $174,000 a year as a member of Congress. And she has she owns a $70,000 Tesla, a very, very nice car, electric car. And she rents two apartments, including in a luxury uh, Washington, D.C. building. And I just want to note that this is all from the Daily Mail. And yet she's complaining about the situation of her grandmother in Puerto Rico saying that her home is in disrepair. She tweeted out just over a week ago, my abuela fell ill, I believe is Spanish for grandmother. I went to Puerto Rico to see her my first time in a year because of covid. This is her home. Hurricane Maria relief hasn't arrived. Trump blocked relief money for Puerto Rico. People are being forced to flee ancestral homes and developers are taking them. Let me just tell you something. If you're making, by the way, her congressional salary, I mean, Lord only knows what she has in terms of book deal money. And uh, this is somebody who's making lots of cash and already has created AOC of Queens, uh, claims to be from the Bronx, really from Westchester, as we know. Uh, But AOC has plenty of resources to help her elderly grandmother in Puerto Rico. But no, she wants to be able to drive around in a $70,000 electric sports car while then tweeting out about how the federal government did not do enough to make her grandmother's home with peeling paint from the ceiling and, and a state of disrepair did not do enough to make her grandmother's home nicer. I got to tell you something. This is a window into the socialist leftist mindset in America. It's all about making other people pay the bills. It's all about making other people deal with the bad policies, with the uh, with the sacrifices that are required, whereas you yourself get to live in relative splendor. You get to just enjoy all the all the best parts of America. You don't, you don't have to worry about whether or not your own family members are being taken care of. You get to just be living it, uh, living it up and family members of yours. You can put aside and suggest that the federal government should be bailing them out. Oh, okay. It's always somebody else's problem to fix. And it's always your money to take, right? This is why hypocrisy is central to the Democrat ethos and mindset. They believe that their support of certain policies gives them license to act in very different ways personally. They believe that because they want to redistribute the wealth of others, they themselves are absolved of the guilt of accruing, of, uh, of hoarding a lot of resources themselves. You know, this is, this is amazing, though, because she, AOC, shared this, and it's to, to attack Trump 
it's Trump's fault. Biden has now been in office how many months, but we're still talking about how Trump didn't get money to Puerto Rico to her grandmother to fix the ceiling in her house as if that's the role of the federal government. I mean, as if that's something that we now are supposed to accept is, is standard. Yeah, your, your house, your, your grandparents house has a, a problem with the ceiling. The federal government will fix it or send a check so that somebody else can. No, this is not the way it's supposed to be. But for the champagne socialists, the limousine liberals of the left, this is the mindset. It's one of the reasons it's so appealing to be a leftist, whether you're in New York City or anywhere else across the country. You get all the benefits. You get all the social clout of being a social justice warrior. But of course, that term is only used ironically because there's nothing warrior like about these individuals. They don't take risks. They don't show discipline. There's no honor in what they do. This is all about vanity and virtue signaling. How could anyone show a photo of their grandparents home in disrepair and think that this is in some way impugning the federal government? Oh, the federal government didn't do enough. You see, I think that it's one thing if you want to complain about government resources or the distribution of funds from a relief program, uh, but that should come after. You, as a young, wealthy, influential person, in the case of AOC, a very influential and I'm sure quite wealthy, although I don't know her net wealth, uh, net worth, rather, individual, until you have taken care of those in your own family. But this is common among leftists. They, they don't do what is necessary to support the people around them. They don't take the action, so to speak, in their own day-to-day lives. They're not going to show up to the soup kitchen. They're not going to volunteer their own time unless there's a camera crew present. But they want to make sure that the government takes from you to give to others. They want to make sure that there is a redistributive mechanism always backed by force, because that's what government is, force, uh, so that they can feel good about themselves. They can acquire not only material things, but also power, use it, and everyone else is just supposed to go along because otherwise you're a bad person who doesn't care about Abuela, uh, AOC's grandmother in this case. Showing this was really much more than I think AOC intended to, but it is a continuing lesson for all the rest of us uh, that if you have two apartments and a Tesla, and your grandmother is living in poverty, you should probably tend to your grandmother instead of using it as an opportunity to try to blame Donald Trump. Probably take a moment and say, hold on a second, maybe there's more going on here than just another opportunity to cheap shot uh, somebody over politics. Here she goes. I want to be clear, while the Trump administration, AOC writes, had a major role, it wasn't just them uh, La Junta, local policies, etc., were all on the same uh, page. Policies that pushed out local families to turn this around. We need audits and get recovery to re- uh, relief to people ASAP without onerous strings. It's it's remarkable to me also just this notion that so now the government the government has to replace people's houses if there's a big enough storm. I mean, th- this is a, a more basic philosophical question. I think a lot of people realize. So now the government's supposed to. But if your house burns down and you don't have insurance, your house burned down. But if there is a major storm 
then the government has to replace homes. What what are the, the limits of that? I do think it's an interesting policy discussion, but it's not one that we're going to have under this Biden administration because it's just open the money spigot, friends, and just blast that cash all over the place, whatever the Democrats want to spend it on. The show ain't over yet, folks. It's time for Roll Call. Roll call Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton or Team Buck at iHeartMedia.com. We're doing all, all the things. Getting it all done here, folks. That's how we roll. Thank you so much, as always, for uh, sending it sending it in to us, telling us all the things that we need to hear about the show, about America, about life. Producer Mark has not yet moved so we just we're still waiting for the for the big the big announcement but uh, it's going to happen any day now producer mark do you want me to do you want me to send a a strongly worded letter to them from the freedom hut i mean that Buck would be Sexton of the freedom hut how dare you how dare you co-op board not allow producer mark a speedy transfer into his new domicile you know i yeah, could throw in some words that'd be great Maybe yeah. some uh, words we can't say on the radio, too. That's what I'd like to say to them. Ah, yeah. yes. Yes, I, I am familiar with those words. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, well, Producer Mark's going to move any day now, so that's good. It's funny. You know, I told the Snow Princess that this weekend I just need a, I just need a like lazy couch weekend. I just need it, you know? Sometimes you know in advance you're just going to need one of those weekends where you're, you, the whole weekend just goes by in a blur because it's all just eating mac and cheese, watching Netflix, changing out of your pajamas once or twice into other pajamas. That's when you're really at like the peak of your game with a couch potato weekend. When you go from pajamas to fresh pajamas because you've been wearing the pajamas so long. Well, yeah, you you know, you don't want to be dirty. So you you have to shower occasionally. Yeah, I don't want to be a smelly couch potato. Yeah, I mean, I just I just want to be able to to just chillax, to relax as much as possible. All right, let's get into roll call here. Dave, first up. Hey, Buck, love today's opening monologue. You couldn't be more humble, which isn't surprising. My fr- Don't worry, guys. Producer Mark is here to keep me humble, but thank you, Dave. My freshman year at UR, a guy named Dave Matthews started playing at a local club called The Flood Zone with a $3 cover, and the place was empty. I knew he was going to be big time. It's similar to what you've done, when you started filling in for Glenn, it was obvious you were on a trajectory for greatness and you've achieved that. It's awesome. And my boys will be lifetime listeners on whatever platform exists over the years. Well, Dave, thank you so much. I really, really do appreciate that. And uh, that's awesome, man, to have seen Dave Matthews in the early days. Producer Mark, you've seen Dave live, right? I have not, actually. You like Coldplay, so you'd like Dave Matthews. Yeah, I like Dave Matthews. I just haven't had a chance to go to a concert. Yeah, that would be cool. I've never seen a band live before they got really big. Have you? They're like, did you ever? Did you go see like the Backstreet Boys when they were doing a, you know, a, a thing in a mall somewhere? Uh, I, I'd be. I was not even thought of when the Backstreet Boys were doing stuff at malls. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but have no, you ever I, seen a band that then got big afterwards? No, not to not to my. Actually, I might have seen somebody open for like the Chili Peppers or someone, but I forget. Off the top of my head, who it was. It's nobody that I like that much, but I know they're bigger now. Man, it's funny. I haven't thought of the Red Hot Chili Peppers in a while. I love that band. That band was always like on my playlists, always. They were, they, I never went through a phase where they were the band I listened to the most, but they were always in the mix. You know what I mean? Literally on the mix. 
they are probably a close second to Coldplay for me. And really they are amazing live. Have you ever seen them live? No, but they I'm sure they would incredible. be. They would be yeah. great. I, I'm I'm a fan. I, I can legitimately say I'm a Red Hot Chili Peppers fan. So as am I. Yeah, I didn't realize they're in number two. Look at you, pretty pretty solid choices from you. You know. Yeah. I, not 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 coming out here with uh, the Venga Boys or um, I don't, I'm trying to think of like a band that will upset you. Britney but. Spears. Well, I mean, Britney. Look, if you were a, if you were a young lady, I would say Britney Spears would be. You know, my oh, no, there's sister. There's nothing wrong with Britney Spears. I'm just saying, for me to have them as my favorite. My artist. sister loves Britney Spears, which I I totally get. But she loves she's she's a lawyer, and I feel like any day now she's gonna file a a motion to get Britney out of her conservatorship or whatever it's called, where she can't make her own you know legal decisions and economic decisions. So yeah, I watched the uh, there was a documentary on that. Yeah, the, really interesting. Free Britney, yeah, totally. All right, Lauren, Buck and Mark, I remember sitting in a grocery store parking lot at Christmas time, listening to Rush, saying goodbye to all of us. I'm a Rush baby. Tears streaming down my face. I could not believe the world was losing his voice, that I was losing my noon date with a man that had always made me laugh and brought comfort. When I thought of who should replace him, I told my husband it should be Buck. Thrilled to have my noon date back with someone who makes me laugh and provides a touch tone in this crazy world. Shields high, and may they protect the golden EIB microphone. Lauren, that is very kind of you. I really appreciate that, and it's a it's a tremendous honor that you would even think of me uh, in that way. And and yeah, I'm I'm gonna do. Clay and I are gonna do a great show together. I can assure you of that. You'll have a lot of my perspective on things every day, twelve to three, and there will be. Uh, Clay is gonna bring a, a lot to the table too. And as I've been joking around, at least. For those in the audience that that do like somebody to have some knowledge of professional sports, you'll certainly bring that because I'm I'm so out of it. I mean, I, I pretend to be a little more out of it than I am sometimes to joke around with producer Mark on professional sports. But I can tell you, other than the Super Bowl or a tennis match, professional tennis match, I have not watched a sporting event start to finish. I don't know, five years, maybe 10 years, not watch one start to finish. So that's absolutely insane to me, but we're different people. Yeah. Yeah, I know. David, all the best and congratulations on the show was encouraging to hear. Uh, I want to add while I'm at it in sixth grade, I took algebra before school. So during school math, I was supposed to do my homework in the back of the class. I didn't like homework. So I would listen to rush on the teacher's old battery battery operated transistor radio hiding under the table, pretending I'm doing my homework. Even in sixth grade, Rush would make me laugh so much that I almost gave myself away once, forgetting where I was, where I was, and started laughing. Well, David, that's a great story, man. That's really funny. Um, I I wish I don't know. I feel like I would have I would have gotten so distracted if I had had the ability to listen to radio or podcasts in my classrooms, especially in high school. I went through a phase in high school where I just didn't really care that much about schoolwork. I mean, I cared enough to get it done, but I I didn't I didn't I didn't want. Uh, I didn't have a desire to excel. I had the desire to do what I needed to do to get where I needed to get. Um, so it would have been bad, I think, if I had had distractions like the radio. But anyway, yeah, that's a that's a that's a very cool story, David. Um, Matt, congratulations, Team Buck, on your new career opportunity. Congrats to Clay Travis. Also, there are two X Files movies. Both are pretty good films, with the first being better than the second. The first is true to the series alien plot line, while the second is more Earth-based. 
You would find them entertaining, Buck. Producer Mark, if you watch the series, you might have a different opinion. Producer Mark, what do we think? I don't think there's anything that could ever make me watch that movie again. That's how bad it was. And I was with people who said who liked the X-Files, like the series, and watched it and still said the movie was trash. So to each their own, but I, I will never watch that movie again. It's okay, uh, Matt. I just want to say, Producer Mark likes the Entourage movie, so he's clearly has some flaws in I didn't judgment. say I liked the Entourage movie. I'm saying it wasn't terrible. It was okay. I mean, that is... That is so generous for what may be the worst, the worst thing I've ever seen. In it was my a five. It was a uh, bad movie. In terms of being a movie, it was bad, but I wouldn't say I wasn't f- entertained at all. That's all I'm saying. Fair enough. And one more here. Buck, I'm so thrilled. Been a fan since you began. I was there every Saturday on your first radio show. I was there when Glenn interviewed you and said you will be a star. I was there for your first time filling in for Rush. I couldn't be prouder. I'm 75. Could be your grandma. Congrats. Well, and... Thank you for being OSS and with me all along. And we're going places, and you, me, and the rest of the team. It's going to be amazing. Thank you so much for listening today, folks. A uh, few more weeks here at this time. Then we go 12 to 3, 12 to 3 on hundreds of stations across the country. Until tomorrow, Shields High.